What does the Bible mean when it tells us in Genesis chapter 6, My spirit shall not always strive with man? Can it be that God will awaken a sinner to his sins, and then open his sin-blinded eyes, and actually reveal Christ to him, and then right at the very moment when that sinner asks for forgiveness, find that God's Spirit has ceased to strive with him? Aren't we assured that the call of God is effectual? Doesn't Paul teach us in Romans chapter 8, Moreover, whom he did predestinate, them he also called, and whom he called, them he also justified. In this sermon from 2017, preached in Temple Patrick Reformed Church, we were looking at Genesis chapter 6 and seeking to understand the context of God's stern warning, that his spirit shall not always strive with mankind. I'm Bob McAvoy, and this is the Semper Reformata Podcast. Genesis chapter 6, and this first look at the flood narrative in the book of Genesis. And the story of Noah, as we know, begins with a description of the times in which he lives. There was much disobedience, much sinfulness, much rebellion against God. Why is it important for us to understand what Noah's days were like? Well, because in Matthew chapter 24 and verse 37, Lord Jesus tells us that as such as in the days of Noah, so also, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. We are to be discerners of the times. We live in a wicked age. Abject ungodliness is the norm of our society. Um, A few generations ago, we had Sunday school children going along on Sundays to church. We had uh, people who attended church regularly on a regular basis. We had families who worshipped together. We had families who perhaps didn't go to church, but who insisted that their children went along to be taught the ways of the Lord. They sent them to organizations. They sent them to the boys' brigade and the girls' brigade, knowing that that organization, if it had godly leaders, would be some kind of a moral influence on their children's lives. We don't do that anymore. All around the country... Uh, today, if you were out and about, you would find that the supermarkets are packed to the doors. Tesco's will be doing a thriving trade. Shopping centres will be the centre of commerce. Those will be, there will be filled with people worshipping the God of Mammon. 
Abject ungodliness is the norm. So it was in Noah's day. And Jesus tells us that in such times, the Son of Man will unexpectedly return. So what was it like in the days of Noah? Well, we see in chapter 6 and verse 1 to 8, something of the times. The passage always causes heated debate. Who were the sons of God? Who were these great giants that lived in the land? Well, there are people who have had all sorts of explanations about this. Over the years in the church, over the centuries, people have said that they could be angels. People have thought that. Even some of the reformers thought that. I'm not at all convinced. I can't understand how angels, how spiritual beings could marry and have physical relationships with mortals. And yet that's been uh, an an explanation that's been used throughout the centuries and throughout history and by some great expositors. They must have a reason for it. But being the simple soul that I am, I simply ask, what is the Son of God? Well, we know that Jesus is the Son of God. He is the Son of God. But there's another New Testament meaning to that phrase. Remember John chapter 1 and verse 12. It says, As many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. In Romans chapter 8 and verse 14, Paul writes, For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. Philippians chapter 2 and verse 15, that ye may be blameless and harmless, the sons of God, without rebuke in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation, among whom ye shine as lights in the world. 1 John chapter 3 and verse 1 to 2, behold what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us, that we should be called the sons of God. Therefore the world knoweth us not, because it knew him not. Beloved, now are we the sons of God, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Now if we apply the basic, simple, scriptural and biblical and reformation principle that scripture interprets scripture, and we come very quickly to the conclusion that we don't need to worry about supernatural beings at all. The sons of God are those who are in God's family. Let's call them believers. People who are God's children through adoption, just as we are. The daughters of men. That's a little less obvious. Let's safely say, though, that they are those who are not the sons of God. That's a fairly obvious conclusion. In other words, if the sons of God are believers, then the daughters of men are unbelievers, people who are still held captive by Adam's willful sin. They are still the truest children of men. Jesus said in John chapter 8 and verse 44, Ye are of your father the devil, talking to the Jews who were the sons of Abraham. 
and the lusts of your father ye will do. He was a murderer from the beginning and abode not in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaketh a lie, he speaketh of his own, for he is a liar and the father of it. Sons of God, those who are not the sons of God, who are still uh, the children of men, and the giants. R.C. Sproul com- comments here that these people were the offspring of the unlawful relationships between believers and unbelievers. Do you see where I'm going to here? These were men who were lawless and warlike and violent in nature. They came to be spoken of by many. People spoke of them in hushed tones. People avoided them if possible. For as society degenerates, they became the criminal class of their day. So what's happening in Noah's day? Those who should be godly, those who should be God's children, are looking with lust upon those who are the children of the flesh and they are marrying them and as they marry them their religious faith is being diluted and they are getting worse and worse and society is breaking down. It's what we call nowadays an unequal yoke. Paul wrote in Second Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 14 Be not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness? And what communion hath light with darkness? In this country for many years, we were obsessed by interfaith marriages or intermarriage between Catholics and Protestants. We didn't encourage that. And the Catholic Church certainly didn't encourage it. They would have insisted that the children would be brought up as Catholics, wouldn't they? And they would have insisted that the marriage to be validated had to be held in a Catholic Church. Theologically speaking, leaving aside the politics of this particular country and leaving aside the the, the wishes and and the, the, the deeply held suspicion that we have had over the years for different communities, theologically speaking, there is no reason why an unsaved Protestant shouldn't marry an unsaved Catholic because an unsaved Protestant and an unsaved Catholic are both unsaved. But there's every reason why a Protestant believer who is a godly Christian, who is saved by God's grace, should not marry a so-called Protestant who is not a believer. That's certainly the case. And of course, in the Old Testament economy, marriage is not just about falling in love and getting married and having babies and growing up together and growing old together and loving each other. There was very little to do with that. Marriage was economic. Marriage was political. Marriage was used to seal great trade agreements between great nations. Solomon, of course, had a thousand wives and concubines. Most of them were just marriages of convenience. 
where the king had signed a trade or a political agreement with some other king. And as a sign of the agreement, he would have taken the daughter of that other king in marriage. It was just a political agreement. And all of those wives and all of those concubines came to live and they brought with them their father's gods and they brought them into Israel and it watered down the faith. The same happened with Ahab and Jezebel. Along with the pagan queen came her pagan gods. And society suffered. As the faith of Israel was once again watered down, and as society then degenerated, as compromise was introduced with false religion, false religion that would be the worst type of religion at all, the worship of Baal, the worship of a God that was overtly sexual and compromised. And that would affect every aspect of life. Business, religion, Politics. What's happening here in Noah's day? What's wrong with society in Noah's day? The church has compromised. The people have forsaken their God. Society has suffered. God's people have been unfaithful to him. Just as they are being unfaithful to him in pulpits up and down the country today, and because God's people are unfaithful to him, he is grieved with them. came to pass. When men began to multiply on the face of the earth, and daughters were born unto them, that the sons of God saw the daughters of men, that they were fair. There's the problem. Trying to please man. A compromise of believers to be like the world. And the results that that has in society. When the light that we should be shining is no longer shining brightly. So we have this compromise. And the second thing that we see then is that after the compromise comes consequences. For God looks at his created beings and he finds them to be guilty. And physical death is always the result. In verse 3 here it says, The Lord said, My spirit shall not always strive with man, for that he also is flesh, and his days shall be as a hundred and twenty years. One of the most misquoted verses in the whole Bible. And we'll come back to it in a couple of lessons time. The phrase here is simply referring to mankind. It's not referring to man, to a man, to a person, to an individual. God sees the sin of the people. My spirit shall not always strive with man. Man as mankind. Down in verse 7 it says, I will destroy man whom I have created. It's mankind. It's not just a man. God ordains our lives. He ordains the length of our lives. The plural plural reference to man refers to our days in this flesh. 
In fact, one modern translation even puts it as, My spirit shall not always abide in man. Now, right now, God is going to reduce man down to 120 years. Do you remember um, the length of the days of Methuselah? Up until that point, mankind seemed to be greatly blessed with long life. Some of them well over 900 years. Now that's going to be cut down. His days shall be 120 years. It's going to get cut down more further. There's another interpretation of that, but we come back to that in a moment or in a few weeks' time. But believe me for now, this verse has absolutely nothing to do with a sinner in a meeting making a decision or raising his hand while he still has time or walking the aisle or anything else while he still has time. We'll come back to that. God simply saw the sins of men and he limited their days on this earth. There was a time limit placed upon them and one day God will pour out his judgment upon them. So it's a very perceptive verdict. Look at verse 5. God saw, this is a pivotal verse, God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. It's the very core of the problem, isn't it? The core of the problem here is the deceitful heart of man. Our hearts are deceitful and desperately wicked and who can tell what depths of wickedness will come from them. I pity the person who says sometimes, and you'll hear this among Christians, the Lord knows my heart. And the answer should be, and you think that's a good thing. Because when the Lord sees into your heart, he sees exactly what's going on there. Jesus in Matthew chapter 15 and verse 14 called the multitude and said unto them, Hear and understand, not that which goeth into the mouth defile of a man, but that which cometh out of the mouth. That's what defileth a man. It's not what we take in. Uh, We are influenced, we say, by our society. We are influenced by what we watch and what we hear and what we eat. We are influenced by our senses. We think, and that's what we put it down to, but the basic problem with mankind is not actually what goes in. It's what's already in the heart when we're born. For we're born as desperately wicked, deceitful, sinners, by nature and by practice. Perceptive verdict. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great, that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. When you meditate upon that verse, when you think about it and think about the the impact of that verse, you can see how great is the depths of our sin. It's described as being great, that every intent of the thoughts of our heart. Our intentions are, are, are severely damaged by sin. We are under the very sway of our wicked hearts. The intents of the thoughts, our motives are affected by sin. Our thoughts are affected by sin. And they are continually affected by sin. The thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. 
I know some commentators who will say, well, we're not like that nowadays. I know some reformed commentators who will look at the days of Noah and they will say, thank God we're not like that nowadays. We've moved on from that. But you know we haven't. The wickedness of man is still great. We have not changed. Perceptive verdict, and it was so devastating that the Lord grieved. For in verse 6, it says the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart, and he passed this dreadful sentence of, of, of wrath upon them. So the Lord said in verse 7, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast and creeping thing and the fowls of the earth, for it repenteth me that I have made them. The thrust of these verses is actually very simple. It's this. God has created us. God is sovereign over us. God determines the length of our days upon this earth. When he sees how we are wasting those precious days, that precious resource that he has given to us in sin and iniquity, he is grieved with us. He's grieved with our sinfulness. He's grieved with our rebellion. Sin, therefore, must be punished if God is to remain just and the wages of sin is death. So, here we have this compromise that has led to debauchery in society. And here we have the consequences of the compromise. And if we recognize the days in which we live, we will know that we are not much different. That our situation today is the church is dreadfully compromised. Society has turned its back upon God. And sin must be punished. That would be a very bleak message, wouldn't it? If it were not for verse 8. And verse 8 changes the whole tenor of the message. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. There was a man called Noah. The verse begins with a contrast, with a distinction between Noah and others. It begins with the word but. Something's different here. Noah here seems to be different from the common herd of mankind all around him. And we read later, but Noah had a godly home and he had a strong faith in God. And one of the things that marked him out is his obedience to God. But before we all run away with the notion that Noah had embarked on a life improvement course, that Noah had discovered his purpose, that Noah had taken command over his destiny, that Noah had cleaned up his life to the extent that God approved of him, that Noah had somehow impressed God in order to win favor with him. Read verse 8 very carefully indeed, because somebody said to me no later than today, 
was Noah the only good man that God could find? My answer was no. Noah was as bad as everybody else. You see, Noah needed grace. Noah found grace. See, if Noah had have been perfect and, and sinless, he wouldn't have needed grace. It was grace that spared him. Grace can never be earned. Grace can never be merited. Grace can never be purchased or it would not be grace. Grace is always God's unmerited favor. God demonstrating his love for us in that while we are yet sinners, Christ dying for us, that's grace. Justice is getting what we deserve. Grace is getting what we don't deserve. Noah found grace, an unconditional gift, a gift that would later be purchased by Christ at the cross. Here's how the writer to the book of Hebrews uh, describes this in chapter 11, in that great passage where he draws together all that list of faithful servants of God throughout the Old Testament. And in chapter 11 and verse 7, he says, By faith, there it is, Noah. What's different between Noah and all the rest of the people in his day? Only this, he believed in God. He had faith. By faith, Noah being warned of God of things not seen as yet, moved with fear, prepared an ark to the saving of his house, by the which he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness which is by faith. Ah, there it is. Noah didn't earn his way to heaven. Noah didn't earn his way into the ark. Noah didn't stand out from anybody else as being a great man among others. Noah was a sinner, just like we are and just like they are. But Noah found faith. He became an heir of righteousness, which is only obtained by grace through faith alone. Now, we've said that grace can't be earned. But the message of the gospel tonight is that grace can be found. Noah found grace. Do you know what's found in Jesus? We're taught in the scriptures that we are to seek the Lord while he may be found. It's found at the cross. It's found when God opens the eyes of a sinner to his dreadful plight. It's found when that sinner realizes that his immortal soul is in terrible danger. It's found when under the inspiration and motivation of the Holy Spirit, he cries out to the Lord to rescue him from his awful plight. Oh, that we today would find the Savior who loved us and gave himself for us. Because when we seek the Lord, we always find that he has already been seeking for us. Noah found grace in God's sight. In the eyes of of the Lord. Let's analyze that in our hearts and the days that lie ahead. Noah found grace 
in the sight of God. What's our status in the sight of God? When God looks at me, what does he see? When God looks at all the sinners in the world, does he see them in their filth and their sin? Because look back a bit here, and you will see that in that verse, it says that God saw, verse 5, God saw the wickedness of man. But what did he see when he saw Noah? He saw grace. Do you see the contrast? The contrast between God looking at sinners who are unredeemed and seeing them in their sin and casting his punishment upon them. And when he looks at the redeemed soul, he's not seeing them in their sin anymore. He's seeing them clothed in grace. Isaiah chapter 61 and verse 10. says, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall be joyful in my God, for he hath clothed me with the garments of salvation. He hath covered me with the robe of righteousness, as a bridegroom decketh himself with ornaments, as a bride adorneth herself with jewels. Philippians chapter 3 and verse 9 says, Be found in him, in Christ, not having mine own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith. That faith, that righteousness that Noah had by faith, that was given him by grace, is the very same righteousness that clothes his people today in Christ's righteousness so that when God looks upon us he doesn't look upon us and see our sins he looks upon us and sees his grace in Christ and declares us forgiven so in the midst of these dreadful days days of compromise Days that will have serious consequences in judgment. We find the provision of God's grace. A man called Noah, who is in an obedient relationship with God by grace through faith alone, living in a sinful world upon which God is about to rain down his divine judgment.